Good evening, world, and welcome to Haunting Season. This month, we've been talking about the fear of death, and we've interviewed Kathy Koja, author of The Cypher, and about a billion other amazing horror stories. You can check out that first episode if you like, but you don't need to listen to that before you listen to this. See, this here is part one of a story the conclusion of which will be next week, and Josh is going to be here with you in a few short moments, but first, I wanted to mention a few things now so we don't distract you after the story. See, some of the music in today's story has been provided by North Innsbruck, our friend up in Minneapolis, who makes cinematic synthwave music. There'll be links in the description, but North Innsbruck is available on iTunes, Bandcamp, and a bunch of other places people like you and me listen to music. Check it out! And now, without further ado... Haunting Season presents Part 1, The Door! Enjoy. When I was 11 years old, I would spend my weekends in the woods. I would get up, I would eat breakfast, put on some overalls and my Chuck Taylors, and I would head out to meet my friends. Our neighborhood was a loop. Sean's house was at the top of the hill and had a treehouse that only some people were allowed in. I think I was in there twice. Sean was the bully of the group, but he was still fun. He was obsessed with slasher films and had a costume of just about every scary thing you could think of. Every Halloween, his family put on a haunted house complete with a guy popping out of the shed with a chainsaw and a dark basement covered in maple syrup, I mean mean blood, and mysterious wet spaghetti in bowls that you swore were brains. To get to the candy, you had to reach in a bowl on the lap of a gorilla or a grim reaper. It was a little different every year, and it was a crapshoot as to whether it would come to life and grab you. Robbie always got grabbed, and that's because Sean knew he was the most scared. You see, word around the neighborhood was that, at a sleepover once, Sean dressed up like Freddy Krueger and scared him awake in the middle of the night. Robbie wet the bed. Legend has it. Robbie was the kid next door. Well, one yard over. You had to cut through Rick and Alberta's yard to get to his from our place. Robbie's yard was always covered in toys, because he was one of four kids. Well, soon to be five, I saw his dad smoking at the end of the driveway, which my parents said meant his wife was pregnant again. So Robbie was the oldest of four to be five, and under him by nine months was Trish, three years younger than her was Rusty, and the youngest was Bree, for now. We didn't see her much. Robbie was the one Sean and I hung out with, but Trish and Rusty often tagged along, probably because their parents needed some space. Gross. We grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, when it was perfectly respectable to tell your kids to go outside and come back when you hear the bell usually around dinner time. Robbie, like I said, was the timid one and got bullied in school and in our group bullied by Sean as well. Trish I didn't know much about. I didn't have feelings for girls yet, but I didn't mind hanging around them. I was never a boys club kind of guy. Heck, I liked her a lot better than I liked Rusty. Gosh, that kid was going to grow up to be a serial killer someday. He was always lighting ants on fire, cutting bugs in half, and one time he threw a hatchet at me from his dad's garage and it landed right between my feet. I was always uncomfortable around him, but 
He was part of the neighborhood, and so he was always hanging around. And if you wanted to hang with Robbie, you had to take your chances with Rusty. Continuing around the circle was Jordan. Her parents were vegans. And then there was Kellen, who shared the same middle name as me, and then circling back around past Sean's house just outside of the neighborhood was my best friend, Joey. Joey showed me Star Wars, all three of them, and we got together every morning during the summer to watch The Price is Right. His dad was a mailman, which I thought was so cool, and his older sister was in high school and was our babysitter. This was the larger neighborhood gang, who all met up a few times a year, sometimes with extra friends, too. But for everyday playtime, it was almost always just Sean, Robbie, Joey, and I. We would meet up behind my house almost every day and head into the gully at the bottom of the hill. My parents had this cool house that was up against the woods, and from the far side of the deck there was a path down the hill. The creek wasn't terribly far, you could still make out my house between the trees if you had to. The gully was about four feet deep, and so as an 11-year-old it was just over our heads. And the only time it filled with water was when it rained hard. This was where all the storm drains of the whole neighborhood spit out of one single metal tube about three feet across and five feet off the bottom of the creek. When it was a particularly heavy downpour, we'd throw on our suits and rush down to the gully and play in the flow. It was like our own waterfall, only really muddy. Because the pipe was a few feet off the ground, the water plummeted into the mud below, making it a kind of reddish clay-like quicksand. We stayed away from that part. A lot of times we just played poo sticks racing sticks we found down the stream. And then sometimes the high school kids were there. They would stand along the edges of the pit, where the dirt was solid around the pipe, reaching down into the clay and using it to dam up the pipe. The water would build up pressure and then unexpectedly explode, sending mud and stormwater everywhere. We thought that was really cool. Until one time one of the teenagers got his legs stuck in the quicksand. He lost his footing, and trying to catch himself, he stepped right into the muck under the pipe, sinking straight to the knee. Everybody laughed, and so did he at first, until he realized that he couldn't pull his leg out. Now, every time he tried to pull it, it wouldn't budge, and then his weight would collapse back onto it again, and he would sink another inch or two deeper. And after a few attempts, he started begging for help. First kind of playfully, but as he sunk deeper, now up to his thigh, the stormwater beating on his shoulder, that deep, uncomfortable pit of panic started to set in. I tried to talk to one of the boys. Hey guys, this isn't funny. But teenagers are a particular kind of brutal. They poked fun at the boy in the pit, pretending to leave. And then he became more panicked as he sunk deeper into the suction of the mud, to his thigh, and then his hip. Robbie wanted to leave, Sean wanted to watch, and Joey and I struggled to reach him, but we were too small. Help! Help me please, guys, I'm not kidding! He shouted, his second leg now knee-deep in the muck. Just a second later and his head was under the gushing water, thousands of gallons per second as he coughed and gasped for air. And just like that, everyone saw that the joke went too far. The teens started scrambling to help him. One wasn't enough. Two, and he still wouldn't budge. Waist deep and sinking, choking, drowning. The kid held on for dear life. It took five teens and the four of us kids some long vines and all of our combined strength to pull him out of the mud. He was alive, covered in clay, and completely naked. 
The suction of the muck had stolen his shoes, his bathing suit, and his dignity. But no one laughed now. No one was having fun anymore. And no one ever came down to the gully when it was raining again. If you follow the water from the tube, or when it's dry, jump into the bed of the gulch and walk downhill, it'll lead you to another metal tube that goes underneath the train tracks. And if you had a flashlight and bravery, you could pass through the tube in a slight crouch to get through to the other side. The tracks were for the Amtrak, and as a neighborhood full of kids with fast-moving trains in our backyard, our parents and teachers put the fear of God in us about it. There were all sorts of stories about how the train was so fast it could sneak up on you before you can even get out of the way. Stories about how putting a penny on the tracks could derail an entire train. But the one everyone talked about was how a kid's shoelace got stuck on the tracks as a train came by at 150 miles per hour, and his brother couldn't get him out in time. The story was that the kid exploded on contact, all over his brother who was trying to save him. Up until the quicksand incident, I didn't know what to make of these stories. They just played like Looney Tunes in my imagination. But now after seeing that kid suffer and struggle and choke under the water, begging for help, not knowing if he was going to die, I knew I didn't want to ever feel that way or even see anyone else feel that way ever again. So we never went onto the tracks. It was much safer to brave the tunnel and whatever gross bugs might be in there. Our parents didn't know about the tunnel, and they certainly didn't know about what was on the other side. We wouldn't go all the time, just two or three times a year when you could get all eight neighborhood kids and maybe some of their friends to show up at night for a game of Tin Can Alley. One of those nights that we could always count on was the night before Halloween, Mischief Night. While the teens were out toilet papering houses and egging people's cars, all the elementary school kids we could round up would huff it down the hill into the gulch and braved their way through the tunnel under the tracks. It took a couple of minutes to get through. You could see one end from the other, but what was in between was incredibly dark and filled with cave crickets and spiders far bigger than I care to remember. And you had to time it right. You wanted to go through the tunnel before it got dark so you could see the other side, but then also the train came by every hour on the hour and it caused an incredible roar through the tube that could cut through your bones. You did not want to be in there for that. So we'd all funnel through at about 7.15, just after the last rush hour train. And when everyone was met on the other side, we did a lot of fire drills in school. We knew how to keep track of each other. That's when we'd climb up the embankment to the old train station. The station was on the tracks, but it was far from being an active stop. It had been there rotting for so long that there wasn't even a road or path leading up to it, and trains raced through so fast the passengers likely never saw it out the window. The outdoor walls were painted black, too, which probably kept our secret all the better. It was just a little station, set against the forest, and it was our little secret. The most intact part about it was the concrete platform, although even that was starting to crumble in places. Inside were four rooms, the waiting area, the ticket booth, and male and female bathrooms, which were, of course, not working, but the boys sometimes went in the urinals anyway. The tile on the floor in the main waiting room was missing in organized chunks, like maybe when it shut down, someone pilfered the rows of waiting benches that used to be there by ripping them out with a crowbar. The wall facing the woods was completely intact, with the exception of a large smashed window that we used as a lookout spot as it was up a story due to the embankment. 
The wall was covered in graffiti like pentagrams and Satan was here and a phone number for someone named Tara who liked to have a good time. The sidewalls were sort of loose and would sway in the wind sometimes, and that was mostly because the main wall, the front of the station facing the tracks, was completely missing with the exception of the door. Freestanding in a black iron frame, the door was beautiful to look at. Emerald green paint still covered most of it, and it was engraved with designs from top to bottom on the outside that looked almost like a map of the location of the station. From bottom to top, there was a road that twisted through the evergreens, disappearing behind black forest, and then near the upper third of the door, the road came out of the woods at the tracks, and there was a beautifully detailed carving of a steam engine, a few people, and the station in its former glory. It appeared to have a three-tiered, kind of layered pyramid-looking roof, similar to classical Chinese architecture, but more pointy and tall than that. Not quite a church, but not quite a temple. Kind of creepy looking, if you ask me. The top point had a weather vane that looked like an upside-down triangle with an arrow through it. And then right there, at eye level, the focal point of the carving and the center of the image of the station was the door. Wide open, with strong lines that looked like powerful, blinding streams of light coming out of it. The door had never been opened by us. We all said we were afraid it would tip over, but I knew some of us, at least, were a little freaked out by the carving on it. What was that light coming out of the old station? You couldn't help but wonder. Was it just supposed to be warm, bright, and inviting? Or was it, like Sean said, a death portal to the underworld? Once everyone was on the platform, we took a few minutes as the sun finished setting to settle in and catch up with each other. And then when it was dark enough, we started to set up for the game. First, you had to decide who was it. This one kid would be in charge of guarding the station and the empty bean can that was set in front of the station door. He could go anywhere and do anything to protect the can, including setting noise traps to signal if someone was coming. Everyone else would then hide in the woods and come up with a plan of attack. If someone from the team in the woods kicked the can, then the game was over. But if you got caught, you had to sit in the station with your back against the wall and watch the rest of the game. We usually had a volunteer offering to be it, and as you might expect, it was usually Sean. But on this mischief night, Sean had a different plan. I think Robbie should be it. No way, Robbie argued. I'm not hanging out up here all by myself. I don't like it. But Sean insisted. I think it'll be good for your health. Face your fears a little bit. You face your fears. I always do, man. Come on. It'll make you stronger. No. I'm not doing it. Sean was smiling. I could tell this wasn't his master plan. There was something else going on here. I looked at Robbie, who was physically trembling, and I wished I would do something to stop this. I hated when Sean was mean to Robbie, but I didn't want him to be mean to me too, so usually I kept quiet and looked at my feet. Don't cry, Robbie. It's just the dark woods at night. You chose to come up here. You wanted to play. Jordan chimed in, trying to help. You know, he might be 
kind of a little bit right, Robbie. Sometimes the only way to get over a fear is to face it. When my husky died, I'm not doing it, Robbie said through clenched teeth. Why are you always so mean to me, Sean? What did I ever do to you? Fine, said Sean. There's another option. We've all played here year after year in front of this creepy door, and none of us has ever been brave enough to open it. Robbie, open this door, this portal, to the deep, dark underworld, and I will leave you alone. That's... That's it? Yep. You open this door and face down whatever hell demon is on the other side, and I'll leave you alone. Robbie thought this over. Sure, it was a trick. But for how long? Forever. You open this door, something none of us has ever had the guts to do, and I will leave you alone forever. Robbie circled the door, checking both sides checking the frame and the floor around it. He even gave it a little push, but it didn't sway like the sidewalls did. This was sturdy and wasn't going to tip over, probably ever. I thought for a moment about a time years in the future when all that's left is the door in the woods on a platform. Creepy. Everyone was silent. I'm sure some of us thought Sean might be right that the door would open to fire and brimstone and Satan himself, or maybe even Freddy Krueger. And some were probably thinking, this is dumb, let's get on with the game. But all I could think was, if Sean wasn't going to be mean to Robbie anymore, would I be next? Okay. I'll do it. Robbie reached out for Sean's hand and shook it, pulling him close. But after this... You leave me alone forever. Everyone is here to see it. They'll know. No more scares. No more shoving me in the snow. No more making me get poison ivy on purpose. That wasn't on purpose. I had it on my wiener, man. You have any idea how painful that is? There was a shared giggle from the onlookers. Mostly Jordan and Trish. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're right. No more poison ivy. I got it. No more anything. Ever. Robbie kept his eyes locked on Sean who suddenly got serious, and then they officially shook hands. Robbie turned to face the door. A few more giggles from the girls followed by shh, shh, shh. I was nervous. Of course, I didn't think it was a portal to the underworld. That's just a Sean story, and he was always full of crap. But the carving on the door was creepy, and that light, what did it all mean? Well, we were about to find out. Everyone got quiet. Seems I wasn't the only one who was afraid. Robbie stood for a moment, breathing hard. So hard that he took out an inhaler just to right his breathing. He took a step forward, and everyone but Sean took a collective step back. A train horn blared in the distance. I took a look around to make sure no one was too close to the edge of the platform. Train! Jordan called out instinctively. Sean gave Robbie a little nudge. It's now or never, Robbie. Shaking, Robbie's hand lifted slightly as he approached the door, one foot at a time. 
The train cried out again, another warning that it was about to whisk through the abandoned station. I could hear the tracks starting to electrify like a slinky stretched all the way out. We all moved closer to the remains of the building, making sure we were safe, but so that we could also still see everything. The light on the front of the train illuminated Robbie's hand as it finally reached the doorknob. It was getting closer and louder, but the air was still calm. He twisted the brass knob to the left and cracked the door open, a tiny bit of light spilling out. Or was it the train light? I couldn't tell, but it seemed like he was being lit from two sides now. The door pulled open towards the tracks. Robbie, staring, confused but not afraid, and Sean with his jaw hanging wide open, slowly backing away. The train sounded an alarm of inevitable passing as the whole group struggled for a better view. I could see that what was on the other side wasn't the station at all. It looked like woods, but not the same woods on the other side of the window. No, they were birch trees like we have up at my grandpa's cabin in New Hampshire. But those didn't grow down here. I couldn't finish my thought because the train was here, plowing through us with a tremendous gust of man-made wind. I laid down on my stomach with my hands on the platform to brace myself. The door, ten feet away, slammed wide open. Jordan, Trish, and Rusty, who were standing together on the opposite side, fell over each other in a pile. The sound was incredible. You couldn't hear anything but train. Everyone was in a bit of a panic, hair and unzipped jacket flaps flying everywhere, beanies being gripped to skulls for dear life, and everyone struggling to get some shelter. Sean ran, as scared as anyone, straight around the side of the building and into the woods, and Robbie, with a smile on his face, turned to watch him. But his ankle caught in a hole in the concrete platform and buckled. His knee twisted and he stepped back to brace himself with his other foot. His body turned, his arms went out. He took two rickety steps and fell flat on his face through the door, landing hard on the rocky, leaf-covered ground on the other side. The final car of the train passed, causing a second gust of wind. The door bounced against the frame and began to swing shut. I scrambled to my feet as fast as I could, reaching out for the knob, but my feet weren't fast enough, my mind not quick enough. I should have known, stupid idiot, I should have seen this coming. I reached, I stumbled, I ran as fast as my little legs would allow, and as my hand reached the knob, the train fading into the background, the darkness swelling in, the wind slowing, the dry, dead leaves settling all around me. All I heard was a faint click of the latch setting into place. Haunting Season was created by me, Joshua Sterling Bragg. Produced by Greg Holdsman and Jessica Richmond, and executive produced by Matt Gielen, Patrick James Lynch, and Ryan Gielen, and is a joint production of Believe Limited and Matt Gielen. This episode was hosted by me, Cody Dugan. Written by Joshua Sterling Bragg, with literary help from Mel Forrest. Edited by Colby Crow, and select music in this episode, including this final track, was made by North Innsbruck. Links are in the description. If you like our show, please subscribe on your favorite platform. Full episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Now, next week is part two and the conclusion of this riveting tale. I can't wait to see how it turns out. Will Robbie be okay? I sure hope so. Kind of creepy if he doesn't, right? I don't know. It's just my personal opinion. I mean, I hope. I guess. I kind of feel bad for the guy. Wait, huh? What? Show's over? Okay, I'll stop rambling. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week!